Ezekiel chapter 35, Esau and Jacob, the ultimate family feud. So let's go through a memory verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. You ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Again, it's not by own strength, it's by the strength of the spirit, isn't it? Working in us. So, in chapter 34, we saw God promising to bring Israel back into the land and to change the ecology. And there wouldn't be any more animals that would be poisonous. The ferociousness of the lions and the other animals would be gone. They'd be friendly and a child could lead them. And the place would be producing bumper crops everywhere. So, although the promises in Ezekiel chapter 34 will find their complete fulfillment in the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, guess what? We already see them starting today. The Jews are already coming back to Israel. There's, you know, seven million now or so. And the land is already becoming fruitful. And we'll deal with that more next week, just how much more fruitful it is. And we're going to see more of these promises, as I said, next week in chapter 36. But for now, in Ezekiel chapter 35, the focus turns to Edom. The actual land is called Mount Seir, where the Edomites live. And they are judged because of their ancient hatred and jealousy toward Israel. So the ancient hatred of Israel and their jealousy toward Israel. And in your notes, there's a map there showing where the kingdom of Edom is. So Esau and Jacob, the ultimate family feud. <laughs> you might have problems in your family, which tend to go on and on. But this has gone on for literally millennia. And it's still going on today, as we'll see. So before I go any further, I'm going to pray. Father, I do pray that you'll help us to have open hearts, soft hearts, to be able to hear what you have to say to us. As Jesus would say, have ears to hear. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has spoken through Ezekiel and judged the nation surrounding Israel, and now the focus returns to Edom. Now, do you know who the Edomites were? They were descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. Now, even before they were born, these two kids are already fighting in the womb. Doesn't sound good, does it? So this ancient hatred began with Esau. And we read in Genesis that he was angry enough with his brother Jacob to want to kill him. And this hatred continues to this very day. And with the Arabs, and that includes those descended from Ishmael who also hated Isaac, they still hate the Israelites. And their life's ambition continues to be to wipe Israel off the map. And so what we see today is a powerful lesson concerning the painful and tragic consequences of unforgiveness, and especially in a family setting. Also, another really important thing we're going to find out today 
is that even though Israel has temporarily left the land, like the Babylonians took them captive because of their disobedience, God was still there. God didn't leave. The Lord was there. It's his land. God chose the land of Israel to be his dwelling place, and that will never change. And we'll get more into that later. So the breakdown or the outline for today is verses 1 through 4. God pronounces judgment on Mount Seir, or the Edomites. Uh, verses 5 through 9, uh, the first reason for judgment is the ancient hatred. Verses 10 through 13, the second reason for judgment of Edom, jealousy. And lastly, the world will rejoice when Edom is judged in verses 14 and 15. So let's read the chapter and you'll see what's going on. So Ezekiel 35, 1 to 15. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. And I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity or their sin came to an end, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it the one who leaves, and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountains with the slain, on your hills, in your valleys, in all your ravines, those who are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate, and your cities shall be uninhabited, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, meaning Israel and Judah, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus says the Lord God, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate, as you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. So I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So let's jump into verses 1 through 4. This is God pronounces judgment on Mount Seir. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, do you notice that God tends to repeat himself a fair bit? (laughs) Look at the word desolate, look at the word against. He makes his message very clear and very simple. So, 
Verse 2, it says, set your face against Mount Seir. And it's located south of Israel and on the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And it's home to the Edomites. Remember, they're the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And this is the second time that Ezekiel has spoken against the Edomites. And the first time was in Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 12 to 14. So I just want to go through a brief history of the Edomites and their hatred towards Israel. When they're in the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years, God would not allow Israel to attack Edom. He allowed them to attack other nations on the east side of the Jordan, but not Edom. He said, they're your relatives. You leave them alone. You treat them well. But what happened when Israel needed to go through their land? They said, "Uh uh-uh. And they got their army and they came out and they're really harsh, really aggressive towards them. And then Israel had to turn and go the long way around, like a couple of million people going through a harsh wilderness. So Numbers 20, verses 14 to 21, gives us a story. And you'll see how harsh the Edomites were towards Israel. It gives us the feelings that they had towards Israel. While Moses was at Kadesh, he sent ambassadors to the king of Edom with this message. This is what your relatives, the people of Israel, say. You know all the hardships we have been through. Our ancestors went down to Egypt and we lived there a long time. And we and our ancestors were brutally mistreated by the Egyptians. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard us and sent an angel who brought us out of Egypt. Now we are camped at Kadesh, a town on the border of your land. Please let us travel through your land. We will be careful not to go through your fields and vineyards. We won't even drink water from your wells. We will stay on the king's road and never leave it until we have passed through your territory. But the king of Edom said, Stay out of my land or I will meet you with an army. The Israelites answered, We will stay on the main road. If our livestock drink your water, we will pay for it. Just let us pass through your country. That's all we ask. But the king of Edom replied, Stay out, you may not pass through our land. With that he mobilized his army and marched out against them with an imposing force. Because Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through their country, Israel was forced to turn around. And as a result, go through much hardship and had to go through many miles of barren, desolate wasteland. Now, later on, Once Israel was established in the land, there was a long history of conflict, of wars between the Edomites and the kings of Israel and Judah. So, for example, in the reigns of Saul, Samuel, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaz, and the references in your notes. Now, the prophet Amos tells us why there was such discord between Edom and Israel. So I'm going to read Amos chapter 1 verse 11. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four. I will not turn away its punishment, because, and here's the four things, he pursued his brother with the sword, that means to kill, he cast off all pity, there's no compassion, his anger tore perpetually, which means he never forgave, and he kept his wrath forever. And a quote from David Guzik on that, Edom held on to anger and wrath when they should have long before put it away. For this, the judgment of God is coming against them. We need to learn to give our anger and wrath to God and let him be our avenger. And we're going to come back to this thought later. Now we go on to some things we can 
notice in verses 2 and 3, it says, Set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, I am against you, I will stretch out my hand against you. So, put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. This is actually a good thing, all right? Because the Edomites had joined with the Babylonians and they had killed as many Israelites as they could. I mean, if you're an Israelite and you manage to escape from Jerusalem, from the Babylonian army, well, guess what? The Edomites would find you and kill you. Either that or they'd return you to the Babylonians who would then kill you or take you as a slave. So that they were really, really nasty. And they also took the opportunity to occupy the southern part of Israel because remember it bordered their country. Most of their country was mountains and so they wanted some nice agricultural land so they just, oh good, the Jews are gone. Ripper, we can have some of their land. But here God is saying that this strong enemy of the Jews would be defeated and humiliated, as Jesus says, as they measured out to others, so it would be measured back to them. And we're going to come back to this principle later as well. So, in verses 2 and 3, he uses the word against four times. God wants the Edomites to understand that they were doomed because he was against them. And so, for those who persist in unforgiveness, God will be against them. Why? Because God by nature is forgiving. God is a forgiving God. It's our sinful nature that is unforgiving. Now, for a believer, not to forgive means that they are being dominated by their sinful nature. It doesn't mean they're not saved anymore, but it means they're being dominated by their sinful nature. And I can share a personal testimony here. When I was younger, my dad was mainly physically abusive, and I was angry with him. And one day, he, when I was about, I don't know, 14 or something, he came into my room after hitting me, and he goes, oh, would you please forgive me? And I said, well, go and find someone else to hit. And I was bitter towards him. I refused to forgive him. And now for the rest of my teenage years, he never ever came and asked my forgiveness again because he knew that I wouldn't forgive him. And, you know, I claimed to be a Christian. I was going to church. I was a Christian. And that unforgiveness poisoned me. And there was a root of bitterness in me towards my dad and it affected my other relationships, and it affected my ability to live my life for God. And it wasn't until I, through God's grace, was able to forgive my dad, and this was after he had died, he died when I was 17 in a car accident, that I was able to forgive my dad, and I didn't understand just how much it was holding me down. You know, the sins I was struggling with, the addictions and stuff, suddenly I was able to deal with them, and they were gone. and my desire to read the word just blossomed. My desire to pray increased like a hundredfold, you know. And now I actually wanted to do it. It wasn't something I had to do, it was something I wanted to do. And it was all because I was dominated by my sinful nature. I would not forgive my dad. So I just want to encourage you that even as a Christian, we can be unforgiving. We're not going to lose our salvation, but it will destroy our lives. I looked all right on the outside. You wouldn't have seen much different, but on the inside, and the secret life was terrible. And I didn't know myself the difference until I was free from the unforgiveness. 
In verse 4 it says, I will lay your cities waste. The Edomites rejoiced to see the cities of Judah laid waste by the Babylonians. And little did they know that that day was coming. (laughs) Again, remember the words of Jesus. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6.38 And the Edomites are a great example of what happens when we don't show mercy to others by refusing to forgive them. The evil they wanted for others came right back on them. And in verse 4, Then you should know that I am the Lord. Never forget why God does what he does. His overarching purpose is what? To bring us back to relationship with him. What does 1 Corinthians 5, 21 say? Or 19 through 21? It's all about reconciliation. God is in us and his message through us is reconciliation. He's pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Now, the first reason for judgment is the ancient hatred, going right back to Esau and Jacob. And this is verses 5 through 9, so let's read that. Because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity came to an end, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Remember, this means that they wanted to kill them, right? Since you have not hated blood or killing, therefore blood or killing shall pursue you. Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it the one who leaves and the one who returns. So no one's going to come and go. No one's going to live there. And I will fill its mountains with the slain, and on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those who are slain by the sword shall fall. There's going to be dead bodies everywhere. I will make you perpetually desolate, and your cities shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So back to verse 5, it says, Because you have an ancient hatred. Now, there's a quote here from Clark. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. Both these were brothers and between them there was contention even in the womb, and they lived generally in a state of enmity. Their descendants kept up the ancient feud, but the Edomites were implacable, that means unable to be appeased. They had not only a rooted but a perpetual enmity to the Israelites, harassing and distressing them by all possible means. So if you want an example of the root of bitterness in Scripture, look at the Edomites and their relationship with their brothers, the Israelites. Verse 9, I will make you perpetually desolate, and your cities shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, there's a very important principle here. If you go against Israel, you are going against God. So Feinberg said, Edom could not escape the application of the Abrahamic covenant, which explains the strong language and the irrevocable judgment on her. When a nation gives itself over to perpetual hatred of Israel, then there is no other alternative than perpetual desolation from God. And it all goes back to the promise that God gave to Abraham concerning Israel in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. So, Is this still true today? God's promises will not change. Any person, organization, or country who sets themselves up against Israel will find themselves fighting against God. 
And guess who's going to win? <laughs> guess who's stronger? Yeah? Verse 5, and have shed the blood of children. A quote here from Block. The victims are not merely Judeans who may have fallen to Edomite soldiers participating in Nebuchadnezzar's campaign. The blood guilt was incurred by searching out and slaughtering fugitives. So they would send search parties out and look for anyone who had escaped the Babylonians and then kill them. That's how much they hated the children of Israel. And verse 5, at the time of their calamity. Now, interesting question. How do I know if I really hate someone, if I haven't forgiven someone, if I have a grudge against someone? Because we might say, yeah, I like this person. You know, I'm okay with them. But when they're down, if I have a desire to kick them and keep them down, that's really showing my heart. If I'm looking to take advantage of someone, if I'm gleeful when someone is going through a difficult time, then I know that I really haven't forgiven them. I have a grudge against them. And you can turn that around. If I'm not happy when they're succeeding, then there's probably something wrong there as well. So consider what the Edomites did to the Israelites. And I've got some scriptures here. And as we read them, we can ask ourselves the question, do I have any negative or bitter thoughts towards others who have hurt me when they are down? Well, I could rephrase that. Do I have any negative or bitter thoughts towards others when they are down and those others are the ones who have hurt me in the past? And I might not act on them, but I might have the attitude of, ha, they deserve that, yeah? So, Psalm 137, verse 7. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. Lamentations 4, 21-22. Talking to the Edomites. Are you rejoicing in the land of Uz, O people of Edom, because of God's judgment of Judah's sin? But you too must drink from the cup of the Lord's anger. You too will be stripped naked in your drunkenness. O beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. But Edom, your punishment is just beginning. Soon your many sins will be exposed. Obadiah, verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders, Babylon, carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. Remember, they're the relatives, right? They're brothers, yeah? You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble, the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity, you know, kicking them when they were down. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. I mean, you talk about kicking someone when they're down, this is about as bad as you can get. So, I hope now it's pretty obvious just how much the Edomites hated the Israelites. 
So whenever something bad happened to the Israelites, the Edomites would try and make it worse and they would rejoice and gloat over anything that went wrong for them. Now, what happens today in modern Israel? You know, there's a car ramming and you know a Palestinian guy rams into a bus stop full of Jews. You know, some die. Well, in Gaza and that, in the West Bank, what do they do? They hand out sweets and sing and make merry and dance because, oh, they killed some Jews. Nothing's changed. It's a horrible thing to see. I've seen videos of it. It's a horrible thing to watch. Now, the passage in Obadiah, I'm going to continue reading from Obadiah, continues by giving a practical and visual example of what Jesus meant when he said, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6.38 It also shows that God's people will eventually win out, no matter how bad the suffering is currently. So I'm going to continue reading from Obadiah, verses 15 through 18. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you, Edom, have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. Whew. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom will be a field of dry stubble. It's just going to burn. There's going to be nothing left. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Back in Ezekiel now, verse 6 of Ezekiel, it says, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. And this is in my version of this. This is God saying, if this is what you want, then this is what you will get. You know, the I told you so thing? Edom loved shedding blood, the blood of the children of Israel, so their blood would also be shed. Their punishment would fit the crime. In verse 8 it says, And I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Now, in Eastern culture, to not be properly buried was the worst kind of shame. And God here is saying there's going to be dead bodies everywhere. And they're not going to be buried. Again, they wanted the Israelites to have shame and no burial, and that's exactly what they got. And verse 9 says, I will make you perpetually, that means forever, desolate, and your cities shall be uninhabited. So God is promising that their cities would become desolate and uninhabited forever. Guess what? You can go to Jordan today, and the southern part of Jordan is where Eden was. And you can see the literal fulfillment of this prophecy with Petra and Teman, the main cities of Eden lying in ruins. And the quote from Paul, Eden's sin was perpetual hatred, and Eden's punishment shall be perpetual desolations. Edomites would never return into friendship with the Israelites, but still hate and molest and waste them. Now for just recompense, Edom cities shall be wasted and never return to their former glory. Now we go to the second reason for God judging Edom, and that is jealousy, verses 10 through 13. 
Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, and multiplied your words against me, I have heard them. So, who were they speaking against? The mountains of Israel, right? And who is God say they're speaking against? Me. God is speaking, he's saying, you're speaking against me. Now verse 10. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them. There is a bit of confusion what this means. It's either these two nations, meaning Edom and Judah, or it could mean Judah and Israel. Either way, the Edomites want to appropriate the land that belonged to Judah and Israel. It's the same meaning, same outcome. So, try and imagine what the Edomites are thinking. In addition to hating Israel, most of the land was mountainous, very hard to crop and very hard to farm, not easy to produce food. And they were jealous of the flatter land more suitable for farming that belonged to Judah. And Vorder and Hop say, The fall of Jerusalem made it possible for Eden to exact its revenge on Judah by appropriating a portion of its territory. This is precisely what Edom did by expanding into the Negev. And there's archaeological evidence for that. I didn't include it. And verse 10, this is important. Although the Lord was there. Now, the Jews have been temporarily taken out of the land by the Babylonians, exiled. But someone stayed behind to protect what was theirs. Who's that? The Lord was there. Yeah? God himself stayed behind and protected his land. He said, it's mine. I'm not going anywhere. And so here we have a new name for God revealed to us. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. The land of Israel belongs to God perpetually, which means forever. God promised long ago to give it to the Israelites. Now Satan is still using his pawns, the nation around Israel and and other nations too, to try and dispossess Israel from the land even today. But they will never succeed because God is there protecting what is his and the land that he has claimed for himself. And a quote from David Guzik, The Edomites wanted the land of Judah and Israel and thought that since the Babylonians had taken the Jews out of the land, it was theirs for the taking. They forgot the great truth that even though the Jews were temporarily exiled out of the land, the Lord was there. He would guard and preserve his land against them. Even when God abandoned the temple regarding the special sense of his presence and glory, Ezekiel 11.23, Yahweh had not abandoned the land. It was still his land, and he still had a sacred purpose for it. What's that purpose? He was going to bring Israel back into the land, right? Another quote from Taylor. It's interesting to note that even in the hour of Judah's judgment, God is still regarded as being there in the land and is shown to identify himself with his people. And one from Spurgeon. When all conflicts shall be ended, when the scattered shall be gathered, when the tabernacle of the Lord shall be among them, 
than this which is Zion's bulwark today shall be her everlasting glory. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. So for the nation of Israel, this is a really important name of God. The Lord is there. Where? In the nation of Israel. It's his. And because it's his and he's promised to take them back, he will do that. Verse 11 says, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. So the hatred against Israel was the evidence of their anger and their envy and their jealousy. Again, coming back to this verse in Luke 6.38, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And we know, unfortunately, this hatred and jealousy toward Israel is still prevalent in the Arab nations today. And if you look at the current situation in the Middle East, it's like Ezekiel 35 was written in yesterday's newspaper. You know, Have a look at the similarities, and I've got this list of similarities Adapted it from David Guzik's commentary. First one, in verse 11, anger and envy. Verse 5, an ancient hatred. Verse 10, a desire to take their land. Verse 6, rejoicing in Israel's bloodshed. Verse 5, taking advantage of Israel's troubles and increasing them. Verse 10, acting as if God himself was not present in the land of Israel. And verse 12, speaking against God and blaspheming the God of Israel. That is exactly what is happening in the Middle East right now. Those countries will suffer the same consequences as Edom if they don't repent. Now in verse 12, it says, With your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. (laughs) God is saying, I've heard what you said against me. So, what does it mean when people speak against Israel? They are speaking against God. Even when Israel is under God's discipline, when people criticize and put them down, you're speaking against God. They're God's people, and they will be held to account. Now, an application for the believer. We need to be careful we do not speak against another believer in a condemning way. Why? Because we belong to God, and therefore we're speaking against God. Romans 14.4 Who are you to judge or condemn another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Just like God is able to make Israel stand, despite all their failings, God can make us stand as well. Praise God for that. Despite all our failings. Now move on to verses 14 and 15. The world will rejoice when Edom is judged. So let's read verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord God, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate, as you rejoice, because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate, so I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So in verse 14, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate. A quote from Wearsby. In their arrogance, Edom rejoiced over the fall of Israel. But one day... The whole earth would rejoice over the fall of Edom. (laughs) Can you see how it all comes back on them? The measure they used for other people is going to come back on them. Now, why would the whole earth rejoice? Well, God's judgments are always fair and the punishment always fits the crime. 
Just as Edom rejoiced when Israel was made desolate, so God would cause the world to rejoice when he made Edom desolate. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So both Israel and Edom would recognize God's sovereignty and give him the glory. Now, we come to an application to finish up. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he's going back to a phrase in verse 5 of Ezekiel chapter 35. Because you have an ancient hatred, and a quote from David Guzik, God's first stated reason for judgment against Edom was their ancient hatred of Israel. God may long remember a society's sins and one day judge them, as in 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. But this is not the place of man. I'll say that again. God may long remember a society's sins and one day judge them, but this is not the place of man. For us, God does not want us to hold on to any ancient hatred against peoples, races, or nations. So, we can apply this to family. Before I do, I'm going to just explain what that example is in 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. It's the Amalekites. As Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, there was a time when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites from behind and killed those who were lagging behind, those who were weak, those who were unprotected, those who were defenseless. It's like a modern-day terrorist attack. It's brutal and it's senseless. Now, around 300 years later, God said it was time for Amalek to be punished for what they did. You wonder, why did God wait so long? Well, God's judgment is always perfect. And what it shows, though, is that God had not forgotten. Justice would be served. So let's read those verses in First Samuel. We read verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So I want you to notice the two words here. I will. So Amalek hurt Israel as a cruel and senseless act of brutality. It is ambush, it's like terrorist attack. But who has the right to take revenge? Only God. He says, I will punish Amalek. Not you will, but I will. God is the judge of the whole earth. It says in Genesis 18.25. And I'll read that now. Surely you won't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So the context is Abraham saying, you can't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because Lot's there and Lot's righteous. You know, It's right for you to destroy the wicked, but not to destroy the righteous. And so God took Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroyed it. But the main point here is, should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is the judge of all the earth. So, just like the nation of Israel didn't have to worry and fret about how to get back at Amalek for what they did to them, so we can leave our situations in God's hands. Now, I've got another story to share with you. There's a situation where 
the inheritance was going to be given to a son, and it was all set up, and you know there'd been a relationship between the son and the dad. But what happened was a daughter came in and changed the will, got in there, twisted everything around, and changed the will, and so the son got left out. Now. That son had to make a choice. That son could get angry. That son could go to court. That son could lose a lot of sleep over this lost inheritance money. We're talking about the price of a house. But this son chose instead to say, money is not important. You keep the money. Just leave me out of it. And that son has never regretted that choice. So, so many people, even in Jesus' day, Jesus, tell him to sort out the inheritance. Share the inheritance with me, you know. And they get so fretting over money. But, money's, who cares, you know. And our attitude is, and the attitude of that son is, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. In the same way, I will Deal with this situation. Don't you deal with it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not my job. It's not the son's job. It's not our job. It's God's job. He is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is right. So God, because he is perfectly holy, must judge every sin. No sin will go unpunished and no innocent person will be condemned. So the scriptures give clear instructions concerning forgiveness and the letting go of grievances. So I'm just going to read Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave the way open for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay or requite, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not let yourself be overcome by evil, but overcome, master, evil with good. So let's have a look at what it means by do not let yourself be overcome by evil, but overcome or master evil with good. This is really, really important and a good application for us today. It has a lot of ramifications. If we are overcome by evil, with bitterness, with unforgiveness, it will destroy our lives. We must let go of past hurts by choosing to forgive others who have sinned against us. Otherwise, we'll be destroyed as we are overcome by evil. A root of bitterness will corrupt and destroy us as well as those around us. We can read about that in Hebrews 12, 14, 15. It says, Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. You see how important this is? If you're not holy, you will not see the Lord. If you're not set apart, You will not experience that relationship with God. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Everything that God wants to give you. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So remember, those who are dominated by their sinful nature will not forgive. And so the root of unforgiveness is that we're just simply living by the power of our own strength and people say well 
I want to forgive them. I'm trying hard to forgive them. But I want to ask the question, is it possible for you to forgive someone on your own strength? It's not, is it? So this is one where we need to surrender and say, I can't, but God can. Because if we're living by the power of the Spirit, then it is possible. It's the only way. Especially with a serious or very difficult grievance. And notice that it says there in the last line in Hebrews, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. It doesn't just affect you, it affects all the people around you. So I think there are many in today's world who live like the Edomites, remaining perpetually angry and bitter because of their refusal to forgive. And I think this is one of the reasons for the surge in mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Now, the hurt may be due to some bad thing the other person did to us, or it could be when someone didn't fulfill their responsibility toward us, and we feel neglected and abandoned. Now, in today's society, the breakdown of the family is a big contributor to this. There's a lot of abandonment, there's a lot of neglect, there's a lot of abuse. So this message of forgiveness is really important in our society today. But whatever the cause, holding on to past hurts will cause us to become like Edomites who didn't experience God's mercy and forgiveness because of their unmerciful and unforgiving attitude toward others. And again, repeating this, Luke 6, 38. As we measured out to others, so it would be measured back to us. Now, again, I want to reassure you, for the believer, our salvation is secure, but there are always the practical consequences of sin. And refusing to forgive is a sure way to make both our lives and the lives of those around us miserable. Now, another principle we get from these verses in Romans 12, 19 through 21, and this time it's verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave the way open for God's wrath. So, if we try to get back at people ourselves, we're actually getting in God's way. It says, leave the way open for God's wrath. God's discipline is always going to be more effective and probably more severe than what we can dish out. We're better off just to say, okay, I'm not touching this. You know, in the case of the example of the son, you keep the money, I don't care. Yeah? So, in the meantime, as we wait for God's justice to be served, and it might not be in this life, it might be in the next, we are free from the serious and debilitating effects of unforgiveness on our spiritual, emotional, and physical health. So, remember that. Leave the way open for God's wrath. Now, another application here is the constant persecution that Israel and the church endured and continued to endure. So throughout the centuries, saints have committed their souls to God, trusting that he will make things right, and he will. So I just want to consider the following scriptures. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. What happens when you don't? You become bitter. You've got to commit your soul to God in doing good, as a faithful creator. That God is faithful to what? To make things right, yeah? 
Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. The godly will rejoice when they see injustice avenged. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then at last, everyone will say, there truly is a reward for those who live for God. Surely there is a God who judges justly here on earth. So, no, it's not fair when Christians are persecuted. And the Christians have been persecuted in most countries on the planet. But we need to commit our soul to him in doing good as to a faithful creator, that God will sort things out. We leave the vengeance to him. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. The context is the tribulation. When the Lamb, Jesus, broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who have been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. These are the ones who have been killed so far in the tribulation. This is future. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world? the unbelievers, and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. So God's saying, look, there's going to be a lot more joining you, just wait. But they knew that God would make it right. So, Again, the bottom line is that God promises to make things right, that there will be justice, that those who hurt us will not get away with their crimes. Now, once we understand this, this is really important, we can let go and let God, literally. We don't have to get vengeance ourselves. God will. He promises to. Like he did with the Edomites. The Israelites would have been going, this sucks, you know. Our brothers are hurting us more than the Babylonians, you know, and just really feeling the hurt of being betrayed by a brother, you know. But God says, no, it's okay, I'm going to make it right. They will get what they deserve. Now, because we're made in the image of God, when God created us, he made us in his image, we desire to see justice done. We desire justice. And so we will be satisfied when justice is done. And we know that God will get the job done perfectly. Now, someone said, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness he grinds he all. (laughs) So basically, it might take a long time for God to get around to judging, to making it right. But he will not miss anything. Everything will be sorted out. Now, when I come back to the gospel, What's our greatest desire? Not that the offender will be judged by God, but rather that they will repent and accept God's gift of forgiveness and escape God's wrath, just like all other believers have, because Jesus has already been punished for our sins. I mean, if we are thankful for what God has done to us, we should be wanting the same for other people. We have escaped God's judgment. We're not subject to his vengeance for all the things we've done wrong as believers. So don't we want that for other people? I'm just going to finish with some verses that talk about forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Luke 6, 37 and 38. Judge not 
neither pronouncing judgment nor subjecting to censure, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and pronounce guilty, and you will not be condemned and pronounced guilty. This is the amplified version of Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. And this next part is really good, really well written. Acquit and forgive and release. Give up resentment, let it drop. Isn't that cool? Acquit and forgive and release. Give up resentment, let it drop. And you will be acquitted and forgiven and released. And then it goes on. Give and gifts will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Will they pour into the pouch formed by the bosom of your robe used as a bag? For with the measure you deal out, with the measure you use when you confer benefits on others, it will be measured back to you. So if you're a forgiving person showing mercy to people, then that will come back to you. If you're an unforgiving person and bitter towards people, putting them down, then that's what's going to come back to you. It's the law of cause and effect. Finally, very powerful verse in Colossians. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 15. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, and gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So what's the main motive for us forgiving other people? It's because the Lord first forgave us. It's like we love God because God first loved us. So we forgive others because God first forgave us. So I read verse 13 again. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So Father, help us to learn this lesson that you've given us with the Edomites. And you say that everything written in the scriptures is for our learning, for our benefit. Lord, we don't want to make the same mistake as the Edomites. Lord, I did when I was a teenager. I wouldn't forgive my dad. and I didn't understand how I was messing my own life up so badly. Father, help us to be free. Help us to be willing to surrender, to let it go, to let it drop, to walk by the power of your Spirit, not to just try hard on our own to do it, but to realize that we can't. Some of these hurts are just too great, too deep for us to deal with on our own. And so we just pray that your Holy Spirit would restore us through that amazing, transforming, healing work in our hearts and causing us to grow into the image of Christ and becoming a forgiving person, a loving person, a tender-hearted person, a compassionate person who desires others to be forgiven as well. So we just commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.